0: Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, staff correspondent Ben Halperin chats with artist, designer, and activist Sebastian Arasres. They talk about Sebastian's recent digital, quote-unquote, vandalization of a Jeff Koons sculpture, which is visible in Central Park via Snapchat filter. The piece is part of a larger discussion about digital airspace rights and the potential societal impact of augmented reality. This episode is part one of a two-part discussion on this topic. Enjoy.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with us. You're welcome. And I, first, I'd like uh, you, for the listeners, possibly to describe what kind of work you do.
2: Um, so, uh, I'm an artist, designer, uh, and we do everything from uh, the interior of a private jet all the way to uh, high-end furniture to public and social uh, projects and finally all the way to uh, tech. So it's a huge uh, range of different disciplines. But basically at the end of the day, the idea is to try and invite the audience to look again at everyday uh, situations they already know and sort of generate awareness and uh, new possibilities that could be used.
1: And so in that way, your work kind of intersects with uh, activism. And, you know, beyond this technology AR piece, what other ways have you had your uh, work uh, be kind of a form of activism?
2: Well, I mean, we've done everything from uh, giant public art projects. So, for example, um, if uh, you were to Google um, American Kills, you're going to get, for example, an article in CNN, which showcases a very simple mural that was uh, highlighting the level of suicides in uh, U.S. soldiers coming back from war. And uh, that was, uh, I think, 2008, 2009. It was one of the first awareness issues about soldiers coming back with trauma from uh, war scenarios. And that public art project manages to generate not only the covering on CNN, but a whole series of articles that appear as a consequence of it. So uh, an example like that, or for example now working on uh, an app to help find missing kids so that people can provide information uh, in a more seamless manner, there are different forms of interventions that utilize both design and art to try and uh, create a difference and uh, help in a way or another.
1: It's fascinating. Yeah. And I'm looking at it now and yeah, simple tallies just on a big open space really kind of show, you know, how pervasive it is for these, for these people coming back from uh, serving abroad.
2: Exactly. And it's one of those things where all it took was one image to be able to illustrate uh, a problem that is enormous and that is very difficult to transmit and to generate uh, empathy for. And nevertheless, it's the the possibility to distil uh, complex projects into into simple, understandable images or scenarios that allows us as visual communicators um, to be able to make a contribution. There was always this notion that the artist basically did art for art itself. Nevertheless, in today's times, I think it's more important than ever that the artist becomes a citizen and as such is somewhat responsible of its community and society and generates artworks that can somehow trigger certain levels of awareness, certain discussions, and hopefully offer paths towards solving some of these issues.
1: And uh turning gears more towards why we, we are lucky enough to have you on is this uh your kind of activist piece um about the Snapchat art installation. Um would you mind explaining uh what, what you did?
2: Of course. So basically we all heard about Jeff Koons and Snapchat developing this series of artworks, which were the first geotagged 3D augmented reality artworks to be placed in the open. And uh, apart from that being interesting and fun and a novelty, it also unfortunately is alarming because um, when you get a corporation to start geotagging whatever they want as a first form of, of um, getting people used to augmented reality, you, it's only the first step to getting people comfortable before they can start geotagging advertisement in whichever form they want. To explain on that, imagine um, a company decided to sell ads of uh, Red Bull in uh, every kindergarten in the US. Naturally, that's something that would be terrible. In the same manner, you could uh, post um, a Coca-Cola sign over the Empire State or or so on. There's a variety of things that you can do on these platforms with augmented reality, which even though on one side could be seen as inoffensive and part of that platform only, they do have consequences in the real world. And that is something that I believe should be addressed because at the end of the day, the virtual world and the real world will start crossing over. And unless the public starts defending their space, uh, we're just going to be trampled on. So the idea was to say, you know what, we're not going to allow corporations to simply start planting artworks wherever they want. Let's go and vandalize it in the same way as we would have vandalized a physical sculpture that was placed in a physical space without permission. And you would probably just grab a bunch of uh, spray cans and go spray it overnight. So what we did was overnight, we um, developed a, a identical sculpture in 3D we tagged it to the same GPS coordinates and we incorporated our layer of uh, graffiti over it so that now anyone who could want to watch the Jeff Koons uh, corporate dog sculpture there could also watch on the same spot our version that was tagged and generate with that a discussion over the subject.
1: And I noticed that uh, you, know, you received a lot of feedback, you know, New York Times, TechCrunch, BBC, a few other places. How did you feel the response went? Did you feel that it was appropriate? They were asking the right questions? Because, I, for example, the New York Times piece seemed to only respond to the aspect of using art vandalism and not kind of the discussion over the digital rights of our public spaces.
2: Uh, sure. I think there were different responses depending on both the mediums and the interests of the journalists. So there, there were a lot of journalists that simply copy-pasted what they found and added a few bits of information as, as it tends to happen today. Um, but there were also other journalists that really came through and, and, and checked up on us and investigated and did their homework and contributed their parts too. There was an interesting article that came out this week on Forbes that starts from the tagging of the balloon dog uh, as a way to initiate a conversation about who will own the future of public spaces and so it, it, it was very interesting to see certain articles that were really uh, using the, the artwork as a trigger to have this more important conversation, which is ultimately my goal. It's like, I for me, I, I always see art and design as mere tools that we use to generate connections, awareness, conversations, and so on. So uh, I, I think that was very interesting in the case that, Of the journalists that did go and follow up on the information, it's also tough subjects to talk about because the audience still isn't too accustomed to the idea of augmented reality. Um, No one has really thought too much about these subjects, and so even the the tech people that are involved, everyone is still trying to understand what's going to happen here. So it it might not necessarily be the journalist's fault, but we were still very. Thankful uh, of having that level of, of support and, and interest, and we hope we can continue pushing the subject.
1: Yeah, so the Forbes piece talks about kind of cyber squatting. And so sometimes, you know, an application like Snapchat or even Instagram are kind of viewed as um, public commodities because they're so kind of ubiquitous. But at the same time, Snap is, you know, on the New York Stock Exchange. They make deals with movie studios and products. And so how do you think you can reconcile that notion that, you know, so many people are on it? And so it almost feels like a commodity at this point to the fact that, no, this is a brand. They're trying to sell you something. They have your data. They're using your activities And then it's also in a public space.
2: I I mean, I think anyone who thinks that these social media platforms are still some sort of a startup or some sort of a, a friendly, free platform is incredibly naive and doesn't understand that they're the product that's being sold. And it's their information that is being sold and their information that's being mined. What's worse is that um, most of these platforms today are actually um, monopolies and the the public and the system isn't fully aware of it yet or hasn't had the will to go after them in an aggressive manner. Nevertheless, uh, I mean, if you think about it, I think it was Google that was just uh, charged with several billion dollars by the European community. And uh, because of a monopoly system, and 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 so it's like we we give for granted this notion that we're using a free service, and somehow uh, we're in debt to these platforms. That uh, the reality is that we don't know them anything. They are they are actively using us, and the information they get from us to to sell targeted ads. And at the same time, they're actively working every day they can on trying to keep us in this system and, and hack us uh, in a way that they can keep us addicted, so that we cannot leave this platform. So, so it's really um, much more complex and, and much more uh, worrisome than it might seem. But everyone says today, "Oh, I can leave uh, Facebook whenever I want. I can leave Instagram whenever I want." But can you really? Every day we're uploading more and more of our lives into the virtual world. Every day more and more of our interactions, our social interactions with friends, with family, with with our work community are done on these platforms. Um, This notion that you can disconnect whenever you want, it's not real anymore. And this idea that, that... this is just a static platform, is also wrong. These guys are actively every day tweaking their algorithms to keep us addicted. And and so it's it's a much more complex thing, and and it needs to be addressed as quickly as possible. And and, and the reason why augmented reality is such an urgency is because we're already spending an X amount of hours plugged into our phones or computers. Let's say you spend four hours a day, whatever it is, The only way for these monopolies to continue to grow is if they can now start participating of your daily commute, of the rest of the hours during the day, where it's harder for you to be always on the phone or always on a computer. And augmented reality is the path towards that. And entertainment, art, and other forms are going to be the element that's going to be used, the, the lubricant to get people used to this technology being part of their lives because it's so entertaining and fun and attractive. And and as soon as we start incorporating it, they're going to continue mining information and targeting more information. And At some point, it would just be impossible to get out of.
1: Um, Yeah, to me, that kind of seems like an episode of the Netflix series, Black Mirror, kind of a modern day version of uh, Twilight Zone, but about technology.
2: Sure, but the, the problem is that it's it's real and it's today. I mean, I, I've, I'm a very down-to-earth guy. Uh, I, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in conspiracy theories or anything. The, but the reality is that the big tech companies today are the equivalent to to countries in terms of the amount of money that they generate and the power they have and the influence they have and the lobby they have. It, like it's it's a real thing and uh, their growth is exponential and the, everything the, their only objective is to grow as much as they can and to keep us there connected for as long as possible and we're now in an attention economy and the problem is people just don't have the time to to visualize where things are going they don't have the imagination to understand the the next steps and so we're all sitting ducks
1: and to your point about the, the commute, there's a new scientist uh, article that came out in August and they have this kind of simulation of a video where they show someone on a city bus and they look at their phone and then the entire bus is just covered with advertisements. Is That's kind of mm-hmm. what, you, what you fear. Sure. But I mean,
2: and, and the thing is, it's, if you've seen any of the AR stuff that's coming out right now, it's already quite beautiful and very attractive. And uh, it's the fact that it's getting so good that it will be something that you'll want to have. You might be at the beach with the most amazing view ever and you still might want to have a weird manta ray flying through the beach just because it enhances it it even more. And the way we're being uh, wired to always want more and to always see the next thing, it will just start being part of it. And so... It's, it's, it's only logical that it's going in that direction. I don't know. I, I, I think people need to start uh,
1: waking up. Do you think uh, the solution is you know, people starting to unplug or just you know, kind of be more conscious with what's going on? If they enjoy you know, seeing a manta ray flying through the, the air at the beach, or do you think there's um, a more technological solution?
2: Uh, I honestly think we're doing it. To be honest, uh, you you can't stop technology. Technology is evolutionary, and so there's no way to stop it. Uh, And you can't stop artificial intelligence. And the speed at which this thing is growing is exponential. Uh, The level of power uh, in terms of uh, economic power or political power is growing in an exponential way, too. We've seen over the past few years the lobbying that tech corporations are capable of doing. There's not that much we can do right now, but it is important to sound the alarms anyway. I mean, it's not about you wanting to disconnect; it's about you not being able to disconnect later on. I mean, with the, the fact that you, when you watch a YouTube video, when you watch a TED talk, when you watch anything, right? Uh, there immediately there's an algorithm that is offering you the next video to watch as soon as your video will be over. Not only is it offering you What will be interesting? It is immediately starting it. There's an autoplay that starts. And they're constantly figuring out what videos you're more attracted to. And they're even organizing them in the order that you want to watch them. And so if YouTube does that, then Facebook is forced to do the same. And then Snapchat is forced to do the same. And so on. Because they're all fighting for your attention. Because there's only so much attention you can give one platform. So you have a variety of different specialized platforms with a monopoly on their own area that are basically in an arms war for who can capture you the most and who can trigger some sort of a, a way to keep you a little bit more addicted. And, and there's a lot of, sh- of studies that show that at the same time, these guys are really working with triggers, right? So for example, when you, when you check your likes on Instagram, you get a dopamine if uh, if uh, a dopamine shot if you got an X amount of likes now these guys are doing them uh, not by automatically charging your likes but they force you to scroll down to sort of hit down in the same form as you would hit down a slot machine handle they could automatically upload that and they would automatically be marked but instead they do this idea that you Almost like a slot machine pulled down to see how many people liked or didn't like. They're also playing with the release of your likes. You might have already had a hundred likes, but they're not letting you know because they want to dosify it in different ways because they've studied and they know that if a rat always receives the same amount of watery sugar from the same uh, spot, it will after a while get bored. But if it doesn't know if it's going to get the sugar or not, it continues even more and more So there's all these little tricks that are being tried by all of these corporations that have all of our data and have all of us to test on and they're all competing between them, it's like that's, that's what's going on and the next step is augmented reality, because right now they have us captive for X amount of hours the only way for them to grow the amount of hours in which they can have us captive in the attention economy is augmented reality, that's the next step so that's why it's so important to start talking about this right now so that at least we can, I don't know, stop it a little, generate some sort of a self-guarding moral mechanism.
1: And, and I guess that you would think that the the transition to augmented reality is kind of getting people away from staring into their phones into using you know, those devices as they're interacting with the real world. And that's, I guess, as you see the next front here.
2: Well, I mean, it's not really getting you out of your phone. The the phone is, for now, the easiest, most ubiquitous tool that they have to give us augmented reality until they can get uh, a really good pair of lenses uh, or contact lenses or whatever chip they want to incorporate into us so that we can move from the phone. The device is the phone, but regardless of if it's the phone or a pair of of, uh, AR goggles... What's important is the platform, is the notion that if we're already living our lives using a screen as a mediator for 30% of the time we're awake, they can only grow if they can take the other 70, and that's what they're going for. And look, it's going to be attractive, it's going to be fun, otherwise they would never get us any, but that doesn't mean it's going to be good. And that doesn't mean it's going to be safe, or it should be in any way something that's desirable.
1: Right. And so I mentioned the New New Scientist piece uh, before, and they talk about brands ambushing other brands. Is that kind of just fold into your concern? Or do you find your concern more about these kind of public spaces? Or is it all just kind of combined into one general concern about the upcoming ubiquity of AR technology? I think
2: the upcoming ubiquity of AR technology is a huge concern in general. Nevertheless, if there is no legislation that protects the consumer and can provide the consumer with some sort of control of when they get information to be presented in front of them while they're on their devices, then we're basically handing everything to the corporations, right? So, for example, one of those is... The ability to geotag advertising. If I own a home and Coca-Cola wants to put a sign on my lawn, they need to come and talk to me. They need to ask me permission. They need to pay me, right? If they can, if they just came and planted it on my lawn, it would be passing over my rights. Now, you might say, you know what? Here, they're not doing it on your lawn. They're doing it on the version of your lawn that is in the digital space of the platform that they own, but what if that digital platform is a platform that is a monopoly that already has a billion people on it and is a platform that people join voluntarily, but today can't really leave even if they wanted to, then all of a sudden they actually are placing something on on your own space and they are dictating what can happen. And if they can place it on your lawn, they can place it on your face or on your t-shirt. Like what, what happens with all of that? Like there's a lot of issues there that are vital, that I, I think are starting points where we can start conversations about what are our rights and, and to what extent is the corporation allowed to take over this universe? How much of this universe are we going to give for free?
1: And, and so do you think that's the easiest way to curb it for now is kind of protecting your property or your right to see something? In, you know, as this was reported in Hollywood Reporter and other outlets, right after Pokemon Go was popular, the city of Milwaukee tried to force uh, companies to get permits to use an AR game to make an AR game in public parks. Mm-hmm. The judge said that they couldn't do that because that kind of blocks the company's freedom of expression. It's a First Amendment right, but they said there are other ways to do it by you know limiting the areas of a park that they can do it in, or by you know putting strict hours or strict limits. Do you think that's a way for the public lands, or do you think it's simple as, uh, you know, as you were mentioning before, charging for the rights?
2: I would imagine it will end up being a mixed system if we move fast enough. So, because imagine uh, you have Pokemon Go that decided that um, in a small town's park, they're going to place there one of the key parts of the game. And that's going to mean that an enormous amount of people are going to go and stand over that park and basically are going to end up ruining the park. Then you have a physical damage that is happening to an entity that does not get compensation from the corporation. Then you have a problem that is happening as a consequence of this platform. And so, yes, the platform is allowed to do certain things. But uh, it's having a repercussion that needs to be paid for by the taxpayer. And it is generating damages and, and other problems and, and so on. And so there, there's going to be issues of that kind that are going to force this sort of stuff to work within certain areas. And I would imagine that, I don't know, you might be able to put uh, ads uh, in the street, but not over the buildings that belong to other people. Uh, because how do you negotiate... Um, if I'm paying a sign on uh, someone's home to uh, promote my studio uh, and someone has a, a, a digital one over it, now they, they won't be able to see mine. What happens there? Like there's, there's going to be a lot of cases where this is going to start to be disputed because there's going to be crossing between the digital world and the real world and a series of problems. And uh, ideally, we can legislate for that. Otherwise, we're going to have a system where... There's going to be a trickle of of funds given to different people just to keep everyone happy enough that they don't complain, and most of those funds going to lobbying groups so that politicians don't vote against them.
1: And so the the Forbes piece mentions, kind of analogizes this to error rights. Uh, any law student would remember from property class that most times you get the rights from the ground to the sky basically of where you own something do you think kind of making a rule like that with visual augmented reality space is the same you know if it's uh, someone buys the rights from snapchat should it be automatic for every medium
2: i i think it, it it depends there might be some sort of a generic giant regulating platform where um every single gps coordinate and altitude is going to be offered uh, for sale as, uh, for rent as long as uh, someone can provide the paperwork that can uh, prove that they own it. And it'll be a platform where uh, I can uh, offer um, as a company, I can, I can buy promotional spots that target in certain locations that I want and customers can offer space to be, to be sold That would be the ideal. Otherwise, um, each company, each platform will have their own element and they might sort of, again, trickle down a little bit of something just to keep everyone uh, happy, um, yet maintain complete control.
1: So if Snapchat, in this situation with the art installation, was able to pay New York, Washington, Chicago, Los Angeles the rights to have this sculpture up for a finite amount of time, that is something that you'd see as, you know, a a solid solution. I I, I think so. I think that would be important because
2: again, if they're basically using an iconic site that um, is maintained by a country and the taxpayers and uh, they, they're simply using that without charge and they're driving more people towards it too which is resulting in higher damages or costs to that place then they should participate maintaining that so that what they do isn't damaging and that's without even getting into corporate rights or so on. If I go to a museum there's a lot of museums where I cannot take photos and I can't take a photo of the artwork because generally the rights the copyrights of that artwork belong to the artist or the family and they haven't given them over to the museum. Therefore, if I was to take a photo, I would be infringing on their rights. It's, I think it should be similar with uh, people's faces. It should be similar with people's uh, spaces. Like people shouldn't, like a corporation shouldn't be able to use my home. If I design a beautiful home and it's mine and I created it, they shouldn't be able to just put an ad over it. Right, it, that's mine. So there should be some sort of a negotiation there that happens, and if not, we're basically giving it away.
1: And, and as you said, the this example seems relatively innocent and fun, but to you, you know, the lack of reaction could mean, you know, instead of a sculpture, it's a sign for a company or a, a lewd message, and so to you, they're functionally the same. Correct.
2: Exactly. And there's, I mean, the only reason why they're choosing Jeff Koons, it's because it's the most corporate art that you could think of right now. It's a balloon dog or a balloon bunny. It it, it couldn't, I mean, it's the equivalent of a Hello Kitty uh, or, or any other sort of a corporate figure. It's incredibly safe. It's incredibly easy. And they're using it as a first approach to get people comfortable with it. You can't start by launching out ads. The whole point is you start by generating interesting content that people like, and as people start getting used to the content, then you start incorporating advertising through it. So it's clearly the first step towards a series of other things. Now, personally, as an artist, it's also a problem. Not because I have any beef with Jeff Koons, no, I uh my cup of tea but my issue is not with that it's with the fact that a company would want to now start uh, editing and curating what gets to be considered art for the new generations i mean th- that's another issue so it's a, th- there's there's too many things here happening that people aren't uh maybe being too aware of and and i think again as an art and design studio that wants to generate awareness, wants to generate conversations. Uh, our result, our object is just an excuse. It's just a trigger. It's a, it's a like a beautiful wallpaper that is there to generate these kind of conversations. And and I think it's vital to have them now.
1: And I think you have done that. And uh, hopefully, people start to realize, you know, the potential implications of you know what what might seem like something that's fun and as you said you know as innocent and easy to digest as it can and could mean you know something else for our everyday lives
2: I I would really hope so and I'm very thankful for your dedication and your interest uh, in, in researching this and covering it I mean today part of this whole problem is that everything is so fast that just like a lot of artists are simply creating responsive artwork that doesn't do much more than, than supply the, the first and the need for information. A lot of journalists, too, are simply copy-pasting articles without much thought. And, and it is vital what you're doing, what other journalists are doing, uh, to be able to, to stop and say, you know what, there's an interesting issue here, and we should check it, we should investigate it, we should put a little bit of time and energy, and, and you should get your audience to to discuss it so that we can all start generating more awareness and be able to, to connect with these issues as opposed to simply ingesting them without really being aware of what we're consuming.
1: I completely agree and uh, thank you for lumping me in with journalists, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, yeah, I thought it was very cool what you did.
2: Thank you so much and, and I hope we can continue the conversation.
0: Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hirschwitz. Special thanks to staff correspondent Ben Halperin, and a huge thank you to Sebastian Narazeriz for being part of this week's episode. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @fordhamiplj or on facebookcom IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting patreoncom IPLJ and becoming a patron for just one dollar. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. We'll be back in two weeks on December first with our last episode of 2017. As always, thank you so much for listening.